Oh, earlier today I was recalling my first time at Spirit Rock. It was an introductory meditation day long with Sally Armstrong. The first day I ever practiced meditation. There was a whole lot of suffering in my life, so I felt a real connection to the practice on the very first day. And I heard Sally say on that first uh, day long that I attended, if you were really serious about this practice, you should sit twice a day, sit for a pretty long time. So because there was a lot of suffering, I started doing that right away. And it was funny, five years later, I got to know Sally and finally got to thank her for that instruction. And her jaw dropped and she said, I never said that. (laughs) So sometimes we hear what we need to hear. (laughs) So that's my wish for you tonight. May you hear what you need to hear, whether or not I say it. (laughs) I remember I really fell in love with the practice. Really fell in love with the practice. I right away started doing a lot of short meditation retreats. And uh, as you know, I worked at the airport, worked at the airport at that time, and It was a period uh, right around the time of 9-11, so pretty intense time for someone who works in the airport aviation industry. It was really such a fantastic thing in my life to have the Dharma. I remember one of the first retreats I attended, the second or third retreat, a lot of visual images, memories, painful memories and images coming up. And the teacher I was having my practice meetings with, Eugene Cash, listened attentively, and he quoted from the Bahia Sutta. He didn't say it was from the Bahia Sutta, I learned that later. But the quote was, in the scene, there's only the scene. In the herd, only the herd, and the sensed, only the sensed. And there was a little bit of a feeling of, huh, what does that mean? But there's also a sense of speaking to some deeper truth. And I just let it settle, let it land, didn't really have a choice. Didn't really understand what he meant, but it felt like something true. And it became like a calling in practice keep, to keep remembering those words, that quote, eventually finding the Bahia Sutta and reading it, studying that. It's a very short sutta. I'll read a large part of it later on, although it's a pretty short quote because it's such a, such a short sutta. And that sutta's kept coming back to me in practice over the years. I'll be uh, reading from that later on. And that, those words from this sutta, just a really inspired trust and confidence in the practice, kind of a sense of mystery, of opening to the direct realization, the direct understandings that come with practice. It's important to realize that wisdom, wisdom being the insights we realize from practice, only come from the direct realization, from a granular realization that recognizes the way things are. From Thich Nhat Hanh, understanding does not arise as a result of thinking. It is a result of a long process of conscious awareness. Sometimes understanding can be translated into thoughts, but thoughts are too limited to carry much understanding. It's a powerful quote. We can get caught into believing that the thinking 
is going to result in a deep insight, a realization. But it's a direct experience, a direct present experience that allows the insights to arise. So really important to keep this in mind as you hear the quotes from the suttas that I'll read tonight, or when you listen to talks too. It's really more about seeds being planted than about trying to figure out or think things through when you're hearing a talk. In times over the years where sometimes fully attentive to the talk, but a lot of the words may not even be remembered, but there's a, a sense of the talk having landed in the body of awareness. So the beautiful thing about this practice is it is about the direct realization, not about adopting a set of beliefs or believing what the teachers say or what the Buddha said, to about one's own direct realization. And it's expressed so beautifully from the Buddha from the time when he was dying with the renunciants around him who were concerned about the, what they would do after he died, how they would continue their practice. And he said, therefore be lamps unto yourselves, be a refuge to yourselves, Hold yourselves to no external refuge. Hold fast to the truth as a lamp. Hold fast to the truth as a refuge. Look not for a refuge in anyone besides yourselves. So no need to go anywhere else. Right, right here for the direct realization. To realize a deeper happiness, a deeper peace. It's ultimately unconditional, not dependent on any material condition of the world. This is the direction of our practice. So tonight I'll talk about the six sense fears. Six sense fears that the Buddha referred to as the all. So I'll quote from a sutta, it's titled The All. And the Buddha begins the sutta by saying, I will teach you the all. I will teach you the all. So imagine being in outdoor space with the Buddha and hearing him say, I will teach you the all. Really grab attention. And what is the all? It is the eye and forms, the ear and sounds, the nose and odors, the tongue and tastes, the body and tactile objects, the mind and mental objects. This is called the all. Just that. Everything else is an add-on. It all starts from this point. This is the all. A very, I'll read from a second, another quote from the Buddha that's very similar to the quote that Andrea read from on Tuesday night in her talk on perceptions. Independence on the ear, then also the eye, the nose, the body, the tongue, and the mind, these six sense doors. Independence on the ear and ear objects, ear consciousness arises. With the coming together of the three, contact arises. Independent on contact, feeling arises. Independent on feeling, craving arises. In the same way, up to this entire great mass of suffering. So it's how we experience the world through these six sense doors, through this body with these six sense doors. The basis, the ground for everything we know, the all. Most often we pay attention to the objects in awareness, but not to the sixth sense bases themselves. So the instruction here is to bring attention 
to the contact and the knowing that arises simultaneously. So ear, object, ear consciousness. Bringing awareness to that. Bringing awareness to this can really support the deepening of our practice to begin to recognize the all. And can really support too, for those of you practicing with a more open awareness, support that practice too. We can bring attention to the six sense bases themselves by using the noting tool, by noting hearing being known or sensing being known. Just dropping that into the practice or in the dining hall, smelling being known, tasting being known. I could simplify it, just hearing, sensing, tasting, tools you may already be dropping into practice. And perhaps adding the additional steps in the chain of dependent origination, the hearing, pleasant, the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral helps to connect with a bare experience of the all, that bare experience of the knowing that arises with contact. It supports a more spacious, open awareness to just bring this in. Perhaps in times when there's a lot of contraction, dis-ease that's present, to just drop in the hearing, the sensing that that's being known too, in addition to perhaps the fear, tightness, pulsing, other things that may be present. It invites a more spacious openness, it invites a, a receptivity and an ease. It supports the understanding, practicing with these six sense fears, that the sensations, the sounds, cognition, mind and mind objects are simply arising in awareness. No one calling forth the sound of the frogs being heard, body sensations known, the moods, emotions, thoughts being known. No one calling those forth. Would you choose all the thoughts you that we're known today? Would you choose those emotions? They're just arising and they're also passing. So it supports the uprooting too of the identification with consciousness. It's often a place where we attach a sense of I Kind of, I am the one who is knowing, or I am the knower. So we bring awareness to how consciousness arises with contact at the sense door and passes. I make a sound now, consciousness, hearing, consciousness of hearing, the object, and then gone. That's how fast it's arising and passing. So there's a letting go of I'm hearing or I'm thinking or I'm sensing. We can let go of that, particularly by using this noting tool of hearing being known or sensing being known or thinking being known or just hearing, sensing, thinking. It really supports the bare essence our direct experience and supports the opening to see that there is no stage director with a show, no one directing the show. The consciousness is selfless. It opens to seeing the unreliability, the constant flux of this rapidly constantly changing experience. Everything that 
to rising in awareness at this base level of six sense bases rapidly arising and passing. So a reminder here too that mind is indeed a sense door in this teaching. Mental objects arising with a contact at the sense door of, of the mind. So in this teaching, mind is seen as empty, empty of self. Thoughts, emotions, moods, intentions, these are conditioned arisings. The real beautiful simplicity to this teaching on the six sense bases, like I'm drawn to the simplicity Open, we open to knowing the simplicity of a pairwise connection between the sense door and the object, the eye and form. Takes both the eye, the object being seen, and then the eye consciousness arising. Takes both. So, at an example, if we're tasting food, maybe tasting a raisin, eating a raisin. There's a tongue, there's the object, the raisin, and there's tasting. If either the tongue or the food isn't present, there's no tasting. So it takes both the sense door as well as the object for that sense door consciousness to be known. We can begin to see this interplay of how this pairwise projection works. I remember an experience with this one time on a long retreat, the Insight Meditation Society. They used to have, I think it's been fixed now, they used to have very loud radiators, <laughs> just banging. <laughs> And this was probably first week of December or so. So cold and the radiators were really kicked in. It sounded like there were five carpenters in the room hammering. I was actually pretty settled. There, there was a real sense of stability and settledness in practice. But the only thing arising in awareness in my practice was the sound, was the sound of the banging radiators. Not the object I would have chosen. <laughs> I felt a lot of frustration, like, how can practice proceed listening to radi radiators banging? And I saw my teacher for the practice meeting, and he said, the reminder, the object doesn't matter. Any object can be the basis for awakening. Any object. The object doesn't matter. We can get fooled into believing that we need some kind of a peaceful state or perfect quiet or no body discomfort. Object doesn't matter. Any object, a basis for liberation. And then he said, become an expert on the sound of the radiators. <laughs> at first I thought he was poking fun at me. <laughs> but I became an expert on the sound of the radiators. And it became a powerful place in practice. When we bring attention to the six, six sense spheres in this way, we can ultimately see there's no distinction between the knowing and the known. No distinction between the knowing and the known. They're arising and passing together. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the herd, there is only the herd. Independent on the ear and ear object, ear consciousness arises. So in this understanding, consciousness is a conditioned arising. Consciousness itself is a conditioned arising. It's not a thing. It's empty of self. 
empty. So at this point, it's useful to distinguish between consciousness and awareness. Our practice is really one of present awareness, present moment-to-moment awareness. Guy Armstrong, in his book titled Emptiness, defines awareness as that which knows. It doesn't seem to be entirely dependent on objects. He further describes it as an activity of knowing, awareness. This awareness transparent, empty of self, empty of form. No way you can define it, contain it, empty. Its function is just awareness, receiving awareness, activity of knowing sometimes called big mind or the nature of mind. It supports the understanding expressed by Sokhne Rinpoche that nothing that appears has any real existence whatsoever. The awareness, empty, knowing, infinitely responsive, but not dependent on objects. No solidity, no one, no aspect of awareness to call self. No my awareness or your awareness. And no one calling forth the knowing of hearing, the knowing of sensing, the knowing of thinking, just happening in awareness. So practicing here with the six sense spheres also opens our practice more deeply to the chain of dependent origination, particularly in the focus area around contact, feeling, tone, craving, and clinging. This chain that leads to suffering and that provides the opportunity to break the link. And so often the opportunity is in this series, series of links. So again, feeling tone, mental activity that arises with contact, the feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Craving, the sense desire that arises with sense door contact. A thirst, this underlying thirst to quench, quench for pleasant sounds, tastes, sensations, sights, mind states like a constant thirst. And it's also rooted in the desire for becoming, for being, and for, for non-becoming, non-being. And then clinging, the grasping, the taking hold, taking hold, grasping to what we think is needed to bring happiness, grasping to hold on to make something permanent, that we find pleasurable or to push away, reject what is unpleasurable, painful. So that distinction again again on craving and clinging. Craving is the the thirst, the quench, the, the wanting for what's pleasant, pleasurable. Clinging is the taking hold of it, the grasping for it that leads to becoming birth in this cycle of suffering and death. So this craving is a cause of dukkha, cause of dukkha, second noble truth. And we can see this right there with our sense door contact experience. It's right there at the, with the hearing, with the sensing, with the thinking. And we can open to seeing the first noble truth as well, is seeing that the dukkha, this unreliability, this unsatisfactoriness, this results from the constant flux and from the underlying thirst and wanting that underlies experience. 
So craving is just arising at that place with a sense door contact, rooted in the confusion, ignorance, that there is anything to take hold of whatsoever, to make me, mine, or I, that there's a controlling entity to do that, or that any stability can be found. The deepest root of ignorance is not seeing the Four Noble Truths, is not seeing things the way they are, and that ignorance manifests as a force of the defilements, the clases of greed, aversion, and delusion in our practice. So our practice is to see and know, to realize directly these four noble truths, that there is dukkha, this unreliability, unsatisfactoriness, that there is a cause of dukkha, this craving, that there is a cessation of dukkha, freedom, and that there is a path leading to the cessation of dukkha, the Eightfold Path. A quote now from the fire sermon uh, that the Buddha talked, the Buddha offered on the third night following his, uh, the third talk he offered following his awakening and his turning the wheel of the Dhamma. A talk uh, was offered to to 1,000 ascetics who worshiped fire. So the Buddha always picked the right metaphor for his audience. So he used fire as a metaphor. And this is referring to the six sense fears and to the underlying forces of greed, aversion, and delusion. All is burning. And what is the all is burning? The eye is burning, the ear, the body, the tongue, the nose and mind are burning. Eye consciousness is burning, eye contact is burning. And whatever feeling arises with eye contact is conditioned, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that too is burning. Burning with what? burning with a fire of lusts, with a fire of hatred, with a fire of delusions, burning with birth, aging, and death, with a fire of delusion, with sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and despair. So greed, forces of greed, aversion, delusion, arising right there with a sense of contact, with a feeling tone that immediate and the experience. The Buddha goes on, seeing thus, the instructed noble disciple becomes disenchanted with the eye, with forms, with eye consciousness, with eye contact, with whatever feeling arises with eye contact, with eye contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, becomes disenchanted with the ear, with the mind, Becoming disenchanted, one becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, one's mind is liberated. So this is a direction of the path of practice when we use the tools that have been offered by the Buddha. It's a path leading in the direction of greater happiness and ease and peace, the possibility of peace in any moment, and ultimately toward freedom, toward liberation, toward the release of the heart of all confusion. So just a little story of what it's like when these forces have been deeply uprooted, when a deep level of freedom has been realized story some of you may have heard about His Holiness the Dalai Lama on a visit some years ago to the Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky, a Catholic monastery. He was taking a tour of the monastery where they make cheese and they make fruitcakes. And at the end of the day, as he was speaking to everyone who is present, He started laughing and laughing and saying, everyone kept offering me cheese and I wanted fruitcake. 
and no one offered me fruitcake. <laughs> so he could see the desire, but without any attachment. He could just laugh at it. Great freedom, a great ease, great happiness that comes with that. And it's contagious, as you saw. <laughs> so the deep knowing that comes with this practice, that granular, deep realization that maybe not in the forefront of awareness, but that awareness, that deep knowing that is there, it can prevent the falling into delusion. Just as it did for the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama not falling into delusion. I wonder if he tasted fruitcake, whether he'd actually like it. (laughs) It's a really odd thing. It's a quote from Minga Rinpoche. Simply notice that you're aware. At any given moment, you can choose to follow, kind of get lost in, the chain of thoughts, emotions, and sensations that reinforce a perception of yourself as vulnerable and limited are to remember that your true nature is pure, unconditioned, and incapable of being harmed. So we can be mindful of that choice point, of kind of the choice point where we can choose not to shoot that second dart, and of not falling into contention with our present experience as it is. I've been using the term let be a lot on this retreat, just to have the intention of letting it be. So fear or shame or grief, anger arise, rather than immediately judging or evaluating the experience, saying something's wrong, contracting, shooting the second dart, having the intention to just let be, to let go, to be with that experience as it is. It allows a clearer seeing of the way things are, supports the further diminishment of the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion. Sometimes finding that there can be peace right in the middle of anything, anything whatsoever. And we can really appreciate that moment, those moments, those times when that second dart isn't shot. We can begin to change the habitual patterns of the mind to not fall into reactivity. Supporting a deeper dropping away and a greater opening of the heart. So the practice of the six sense fears can really support more open, spacious awareness. It's a tool I bring into my practice a lot. Every night before going to sleep, I do a short walk that's um, do I need to turn the volume up a little bit? Are you okay with the sound? Okay. Um, we'll see if we can get another headset. So every night before, I'll speak a little louder for now, every night before going to bed, I go for a short meditation walk, just four or five blocks. And it's not the intention of exercising, it's the intention, intention of of engaging in a walking practice. And most often it's with these six sense fears. Hearing, sensing, thinking, plenty of thinking too. And there's a real sense of ease and spaciousness that comes with that, that supports a clarity and an open receptivity. And it serves to support the practice to allow the calaises, the defilements, to drop away. Those calaises block the natural clarity of the heart and mind. And a key aspect of the instruction from the Buddha on the six sense fears is to know when the defilement arises, how to support its removal, and then how to prevent a future arising. This is part of the instruction. Very similar to working with the five hindrances. And in fact, in some teachings, the sixth sense fears is taught before the five hindrances as a basis to support working with the five hindrances. A quote from the Buddha, luminous is this mind, but it is obscured by visiting defilements. 
And an uninstructed, ordinary person does not understand this as it really is. So for them, there is no development of mind. And then luminous is this mind and it is freed from visiting defilements. An instructed noble disciple understands that as it really is. So for them, there is development of mind. So we're instructed noble disciples. We understand that. We're cultivating the practice and developing the mind, cultivating the diminishment of these forces of greed, aversion, and delusion. It's really beautiful to, to see and recognize the qualities that come forth as these diminish and begin to disappear, the heart qualities and the sense of, of coming home that some of you have referred to, the sense of coming home as a cloud of delusion lifts. It's a quote from T.S. Eliot that captures this so beautifully. We shall not cease from exploration and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. So also a beautiful reminder that it's not about getting anywhere. It's about letting the cloud of delusion to lift and see that everything we've ever longed for is right here. We can really appreciate the beautiful qualities that come forth when these defilements are not present. Appreciating our own goodness, appreciating our own sila, appreciating the goodness of others, allowing the beautiful qualities of the heart, the Brahma-viharas, of loving kindness to just come forth so naturally. These are just natural qualities arising in awareness when there's no presence of the defilements. And they support the opening to equanimity, this calm, peaceful acceptance of the heart, this neutrality that ultimately supports the deepest realizations, to see and know things as they are, and supports the opening to compassion and supportive joys, this natural responsiveness to conditions. opening to appreciate the joy of our own generosity. These can arise in our practice right here. Beautiful memories come up when we reflect on the generosity, the generosity that is often defined as a very foundation of practice. The Buddha said there's joy in the intention to give, joy in the giving, joy in the reflection afterwards. This can be naturally rising in our practice to reflect on on joy in our lives, the joy that comes with generosity. And the gratitude that just naturally arises as the defilements subside. Great gratitude for being here for simple things, for the meals, for the support of the other yogis on the retreat. When I reflect on my own practice, my life, there's not one thing I can't be grateful for. Even the hardest, toughest things, the most painful things, no distinction ultimately to be made. No distinction between one and another. Everything coming together to this present moment right now. Everything without distinction. How can there be anything other than gratitude? Another quote from Minga Rinpoche. All that we are looking for in life, all the happiness, contentment, and peace of mind is right here in the present moment. Ah, A beautiful statement. Everything we are looking for in life, all the happiness, contentment, and peace of mind is right here in the present moment. As we practice, as we practice with present awareness, practice with the defilements that cloud the heart and mind, 
Practice wisely with the five hindrances, with the seven factors of awakening. The defilements begin to lose their force. There's a real benefit of practice. We can find that really we can take great refuge in the awareness. This awareness that vast, limitless, not self. And with our practice too, with the six sense fears that we're, I'm offering instructions on and um, reflections on tonight, we can really welcome, welcome Mara. Such an important part of practice to welcoming and acknowledge, welcome and acknowledge the defilements as they arise. Sharon Salzberg says, thinking we are only supposed to have loving and compassionate feelings can be a terrible obstacle to practice. <laughs> Let that in next time you start judging and evaluating the afflictive emotions that might be arising. They're just arising. No one to blame. They're just arising from causes and conditions. It's just the way it is. So we can just say, welcome Mara. I see you, Mara. I see this greed. I see this aversion. I see the cloud of delusion. Sometimes we can break the cycle just by using the noting tool of hearing being known, unpleasant. It doesn't go anywhere else. It just stops there. It's just unpleasant. There's no clinging, craving, no becoming. So the noting tool right there can help to break the chain of dependent origination opening to more and more moments of peace. Sometimes we need to go more deeply into the experience of of greed and aversion as we've been talking about on the retreat, to be there for the direct experience, to see they're ultimately transparent, empty of self, no, without substance. Have to be there for the direct experience for the defilements to lose their force. I love that analogy that ultimately the defilements are just like clouds or fog. Living in San Francisco where there's so much fog, it's a beautiful analogy. The fog is there. Look at the fog. The seeing of the fog allows the fog to drop away. Allows the fog to dissipate. And then the natural purity and clarity emerges. So turning again toward awareness itself. It's awareness that's immediately responsive, empty, transparent, so not self. Not my awareness. Not a self to be found in awareness. And in fact, awareness can't be found. Try and find it. (laughs) not to be found. Guy Armstrong says says it's a functioning, a revealing, an illuminating of what appears. Awareness is awareing. Another quote from him. Everything we see is an appearance in consciousness, a projection conditioned and limited by our sense doors and consciousness. This is the magic show. To say that it is an illusion is not to say that nothing exists. It is to say that we have misunderstood the way in which things exist. The things of our human experience, the totality that Buddhism is interested in, exists as appearances in consciousness. The appearances are not solid. They are void, hollow and insubstantial, like a magic shell.
from Jack Cornfield, when we learn to rest in awareness, there's both caring and silence. There's listening for what's the next big thing to do and awareness of all that's happening. A big space and a connected feeling of love. So now the Bahia Sutta. And I'll provide a little context uh, for the Bahia Sutta. Bahia was on board a ship that sunk off the coast of what is now India. And he managed to swim to shore. He lost his clothes in swimming to shore. So when he got to shore, he, the story is that he made clothing from the bark of trees. So he was known, became known as Bahia, the man of the bark, a man of the bark, I think was the term used. So when he showed up in the town, having made this clothing made from bark, the townspeople thought, who is this strange guy? And then a few generous people offered him clothing and he turned it down. So then they started thinking, there must be something specialist about this guy. And the townspeople started to believe that he was an arhat, which is just before Buddhahood. And Bahia started believing it too. They, they must know something I don't know. Maybe I am an arhat. So he believed it. And practitioners started coming to him. And then one day, uh, Deva, a spiritual force, appeared in awareness and said to Bahia, you're not an arhat at all. <laughs> Sorry, Bahia. <laughs> but Bahia had a great wish for liberation. And he asked uh, Deva, where can I go? Who can help me? And the Deva said, can go to the Buddha. Where can he be found? In Jetta's Grove, Savati. So immediately Bahia took off, traveled a long distance, I think several days. And he got to Jetta's Grove, saw renunciants doing the walking practice and interrupted them while they were walking and said, where can I find the Buddha? And he said, he's on his alms rounds. So he immediately went to find the Buddha in Savati on his alms rounds. So I'll now read from the text. It's a really beautiful, beautiful language. Bihia saw the Blessed One going for alms in Savati. Serene and inspiring serene confidence calming, his senses is at peace, his mind at peace, having attained the utmost tranquility and poise, tamed, guarded, his senses restrained, a great one. Seeing him, he approached the Blessed One and on reaching him, threw himself down with his head at the Blessed One's feet and said, teach me the Dhamma, O Blessed One, Teach me the Dhamma, O well-gone one, that will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. And when this was said, the Blessed One said to him, This is not the time, Bahia. We have entered the town for alms. And a second and a third time, Bahia repeated the request, also adding that it was hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for me. And after the third time, as usually happened in, the, in these stories, it usually took three times of asking, the Buddha agreed to share the teachings. So here's one of the most concise, clear, right to the point, right to the heart teachings. 
the Buddha, seeing the sincerity of Bihiya's wish for freedom, said, In the seen, there is only the seen. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. And the cognizer is only the cognize. This, Bahia, is how you should train yourself. When, Bahia, there is for you, in the seen, only the seen, in the heard, only the heard, in the sensed, only the sensed, in the cognized, only the cognized, then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with all that. When Bihiya, there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When Bihiya, there is no you there, then Bihiya, you are neither here nor there nor in between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. I'm really experiencing this as a, as a sacred teaching. And experiencing this as a feeling of great gratitude that these teachings survived. So Bahia received these instructions and he left and turned the corner and was gored by a cow with a calf and he died. Immediately afterwards, he died. And the Buddha saw his body a short time later, provided that the body was cremated, and told the renunciants that Bahia had realized liberation, had realized arhatship, stepped below Buddhahood on hearing that teaching. So what happened? It wasn't magic. For the end of suffering to be known, the first noble truth is to be known. But he realized the first noble truth on hearing those teachings. There is dukkha. This unreliability, this unsatisfactoriness, right at the bare essence of the sense door experience. Consciousness arising and passing with contact. Everything in flux, absolutely nothing to hang on to, nothing to be called self. The first noble truth was understood by Bahia fully. And the second noble truth was understood fully. The cause of dukkha, craving, the craving that arises right there with contact, right at that point. This unending stream of desire for sense pleasure at the sense doors for pleasant sensations, sounds, tastes, smells, cognitions. The desire for being, the desire for becoming, for non-being, for non-existence right at that point. He realized the second noble truth fully. He realized the path leading to the cessation of dukkha, the fourth noble truth, the eightfold path of practice. Perhaps Bahia was a great practitioner in a previous life, perhaps in his own life, he had realized a degree of understanding and that supported this immediate opening to these teachings offered by the Buddha. Perhaps not, who knows, maybe just the realizations came that quickly. And then Bahia realized fully the third noble, noble truth, 
the cessation of dukkha, the end of suffering, freedom. All identification, self-identification gone. The deepest roots of sense desire and ill will fully removed for Bahia, who had realized arhantship. Perhaps Bahia knew too that the knowing of the Four Noble Truths was empty as well. Even that. And there was the opening to Nibbana that Andrea spoke about this morning in the morning sit, this cooling, opening to the unconditioned, that which is outside of the sixth sense door experience, the complete cessation of dukkha. So just to acknowledge too, we can have tastes of this experience of freedom in our practice. Sometimes we can not even pause to appreciate it. In a moment where there's no coming or going, maybe a moment when we're just resting in awareness effortlessly, maybe a moment just standing up from a sitting, ah, just this, a small moment, a taste of Nibbana, moments of peace and ease that open up more and more in our practice that help to lead us in the direction of this deeper level of freedom that's so greatly supported by open, receptive, kind, gentle awareness. Here's another description of Nibbana from the Buddha. Where consciousness is soundless, boundless, luminous all around. That is where earth, water, fire, and air find no footing. Their name and form are wholly destroyed. With the cessation of consciousness, this is all destroyed. And finally, a quote from Tejitsu the abbess of a Zen Zen nunnery in Japan, describing her awakening. And then she saw that a rising arose, abided and fell away. She saw that knowing this arose, abided and fell away. Then she knew that there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. Sit.
Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.